This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hello and welcome to the Red Box Politics Podcast and The Times. I'm Matt Chorley. That's it then. Parliament has packed up for five weeks, but we are still here trying to make sense of it all. And we've got some cracking episodes lined up over the next few weeks. So to be sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify or wherever you listen so that you don't miss a single one. And we've got a cracking episode for you today. David Ivanovich on the rise of the Lib Dems. Rachel Sylvester on the demise of John Burko. But first, Jason Stein until the weekend was a special advisor to Amber Rudd on what her resignation means for the Tory party. Just four years ago, Amber Rudd, Joe Swinson and Marc Francois served as ministers in the same government. So while some may dismiss as meaningless the sacking of 21 moderates and the resignation of my boss, Amber Rudd, it marks the end of a successful era of compromised politics in the Conservative Party and is the final nail in the coffin of David Cameron's party reforms. So, Jason, um, the Red Box podcast is sort of increasingly becoming a sort of safe space for for former spads who've escaped from this government uh, over over a period of weeks. Um, before we get on to the, what this means more broadly for the Tory party, let's talk about what happened with your boss's resignation. Yeah. When did you know that she was going to resign? Um, early enough in the week when she started uh, really considering it, and obviously when these discussions first take place. In all honesty, the first thing you do is you, you challenge and you say, is this really what you want to do? But then when your boss makes the decision, really as a special advisor, you're sort of duty bound to uh, to back them to work as hard as you possibly can to make success of what they want to do. Um, and for Amber, she made the right decision for her. It was. Yes, can I just ask you a quick question of uh, information? As soon as she goes out of, uh, out of her job, do you lose yours? I evaporate. You evaporate, and you lose, uh, and you, uh, yes. and, and your and your money goes too. So you're not earning any more as from the moment she she gets. That, that is correct. I got a lovely message on Monday morning from the cabinet office propriety and ethics team. Hello, can you please call us? And they inform you that uh, you have been terminated. Now you were saying as you were coming in this morning that um, you you keep patting yourself looking for your your extra government phones because you explain how many mobile phones you had. So I had three mobile phones, three and a half. One, one of them didn't quite work. But one basi- day they'll put them all on one. Well, no, this is it. So explain why you had three mobile well, phones. Because basically it was impossible for the government to actually put all your email addresses together on one phone. So, uh, for example, private secretaries carry around four phones with them. There's, in DWP <laughs> private office. 
we have one mobile phone that just has the Secretary of State's calendar on it. And that's all it does. It's just a calendar, a very expensive <laughs> calendar. Do you, have, do you have to have one Dominic Cummings can't get access to in case you want to look through all your texts? I, I, I would, as I, I think I've described the government phone, which you are issued with, as basically a very expensive torch because that's all that it ever should be used for. <laughs> um, but yeah, I have to keep checking myself. I've only got one phone now. It's devastating. But you had three because you had your own phone. Yes. A DWP phone. Yes. And an equalities office phone. Yes. And they were all separate. They were all separate. And basically... Did you put them in different pockets? Uh, and no, so you know, if, it, if, no. if the buzz goes off near your left groin, it's the equalities. <laughs> <laughs> what happens if one rings the other? Well, so the other... <laughs> so you just disappeared. The, black no hole. one ever had the phone numbers, again, for my government phones. I, I, yeah, th- those phones were uh, basically, yes, as I say, expensive torches. Every, you, it's basically no one actually wants all those phones. Although you feel quite cool when your friends ask why you have so many phones. I, at one point, I, I had four mobile phones on my desk. Um, and so let's talk about the, slightly more of the substance. As Rachel brought up Dominic Cummings, uh, how was your relationship? What do you make of Cummings? Genius or, or lunatic? I genuinely like him, honestly. He, he has got an astonishing work ethic. He can bring a room together. He's a leader of people. Whether you agree or disagree with his politics, and there are many people who do disagree with his politics... He's quite an astonishing performer, and people buy into him, and I never had a problem with him. To what extent do you think it, this has become a performance? We've had these these Friday briefings, which seem now designed to leak. We had Cool as the Fonz last oh, week. They're absolutely designed to leak. You um, have every week at the SPAD meeting at number 10, you have sort of a designated uh, number 10 press pad who sits on the front row to record what he's saying, because they, they, <laughs> they need a recording, because A, the whole thing comes out anyway, they need to be able to check it. And I suspect some of it is quite good news copy and it's on message, which is not what every cabinet minister is. Do you feel that after watching Dominic at Hummings at Work, you're any closer to understanding phenomena like Jonestown? <laughs> I don't know. I, I, um, you'll never quite be able to understand his Apollo theories because um, I think you need to uh, have a certain brain to try and work them out. But look, he, he's a guy who is completely unwilling to compromise. He's got a ruthlessness about the way he operates. When he said his task was by any means necessary, he really means it. And actually, you know, if the Remainers, whatever you want to call them, the non-no-dealers over the years, had had the same ruthlessness, from their point of view, we probably wouldn't be in this mess. Do you think his strategy is a winning strategy? Because actually you could say they're not going to get Brexit now on the 31st of October and they might now also lose an election. What, what do, you, do you think those, that's a winning strategy? I think, I think an election is harder to say, to judge, because I still believe, despite you know how difficult it would be, I still believe if there was an election, they'd probably come back as the largest party. The Conservatives. Yeah, and... It's interesting you say they and not we. Well, I, I'm, try, I'm trying to be <laughs> a... a, a are, you a, are you a Tory party member? I am. Still. I am. I am still a Conservative Party member. Yeah. Does it cross your mind not to be? Not really, because you know, I uh, I think I think there's still a, a a party there that is doing the right things in many many areas, and actually on domestic policy, I mean, basically, I think they probably are in the right place. But as to Rachel's question, I think the election they've probably teed it up nicely enough to remain as the largest party. On Brexit, it does remain to be seen. I think people who underestimate the willingness of this government to go 
to any means necessary are going to make a huge, huge mistake. David, what do you think, going back to the point that Jason made right at the beginning about how this is the final nail in the coffin of David Cameron's, you know, party reforms or modernisation, whatever you call it, do you think it is and do you think that matters? Um, we should lay our clouds on the table. We had our politics meeting this morning and we have all the kind of grand panjandrums of, uh, and, you know, and quite a few of the colonists sitting around. Today. And one of the things, um, you know, the, the underclass, and one of the things that I was thinking about is the, the degree to which we are reluctant to recognise that our system doesn't work. Um, uh, it was created under different circumstances for a different setup of parties uh, and so on. And Cameron recognised that in 2010. One of the extraordinary uh, achievements of Cameron was to see that in 2010 you had to go into a coalition and that a coalition meant that and you had to begin to operate as part as people do on the continent where they operate under more proportional systems. We've got the worst of both worlds. We now have an adversarial first-past-the-post system, but actually with minor with minority governments and probably quite possibly built in for one reason or another and we simply don't know how to operate them uh, and what the conservative party has more or less done now is put itself in the position whereby it says we are unwilling to be in coalition with anybody where and but they're a minority party so this is all about constructing somehow bullying a um a a decision out of people who are unwilling to make that decision for you because you actually failed to persuade them and that's a really and that's very un-Cameronian it's pretty dangerous. Rachel although we talk about coalitions we think of the Tories and the Lib Dems in 2010 entire political parties are coalitions and the whole point well there were broad churches the way that people got majorities was by stretching across that broad church so if you decide you're not going to allow that coalition you'd end up just not having a majority. Well that's the way in which our first past the post politics works is the two parties are effectively coalitions within each other. And the problem with what Boris Johnson's doing is he's trying to turn the Tory party into the Brexit party. Uh, and that may be a sort of 35% strategy, a bit like Ed Miliband had at the uh, 2015 election. But it's hard to see how you really win a, a lasting majority like that. And he admitted to the Tory rebels when they went in to see him in number 10 last week that he was willing to write off whole swathes of potential Lib Dem seats like Guildford uh, that now were lost to the Tories because they were trying to run after Brexit supporting seats. But the danger for the Conservatives, I think, is that in a lot of those northern and midlands constituencies, there's an innate hostility or antipathy to the Conservative Party. Uh, they've always been Labour, so they might switch to the Brexit Party because they feel that's sort of anti-establishment party and in favour of leave. But there's still a kind of nervousness and a suspicion of the Tories. And Boris Johnson somehow embodies all that's worst, a sort of public school buffoon establishment figure for those kinds of voters. Jason, if, if Boris Johnson wants to know how uh, a Tory candidate might win a seat held by Labour, they could pick up the phone to Amber Rudd and ask her, because she she knew how to do it. In Hastings, yes. I mean, to Rachel's point, flipping the electoral map is a perfectly reasonable thing to do. It, it, you have to be able to pull it off. You know, I think to, for example, in America, California used to be a solid Republican state. It's absolutely fine to try and shift your strategy to win other seats. You have to be able to pull it off though and it looks <laughs> like we will need to win in areas that have never voted conservative before Give us an example we'll need to win places right across the northeast in north wales places like wrexham we'll need to win places in the northwest for example bury south one of my uh, my, my home constituency has had a 
Labour MP for a very, very, very long time. And it's never really come close to going to the Conservatives, but that is exactly the type of seat they'll need to win. And they were trying to win at the last election yeah. under Theresa May. Yeah. And it didn't... Absolutely. Work. Look, uh, they, they'll take a, uh, what I'd probably call, a like a Bolsover first approach in 2019. And to be fair, Theresa May had some success doing it. They will do it on steroids in 2019. And if Theresa May can win areas like Stoke and Cleveland, Middlesbrough, then it stands to say it's perfectly reasonable that Boris Johnson will do a little bit better. But to win a majority, he's going to need to win Darlington, Bishop Auckland, all these places. But also, hang on to 13 seats in Scotland, well, I thought a, load of, a load of home counties, uh, Tory seats, which could go Lib Dem. Lib Dem's coming back in the southwest. There's not even a standstill position. So the more he reaches to try and get those yep. leave seats, he loses stuff out the back. You, over the past couple of days, have been talking about some polling that you'd seen that uh, showed that the Tories wouldn't get a majority, that Downing Street insists either doesn't exist or if it did, you didn't see it. Explain what you were talking about. So I'm just I'm surprised at this because... Firstly, polling is there to be beaten. Polling is not a... It's not hard and fast. Different polling exists. Polling exists in the, in the moment that it is taken. It's there to be beaten. You know, the last polling that I discussed with people was that this was the projection, that we would win 295 to 300. There will be polls that show us winning less than that. There will be polls that show us winning more than that. Was this but, a Downing Street poll? Or who knows? This, this was polling I discussed mm-hmm. with people. And two with be- what sort of people? Pe- tall people, tall shouty people with glasses of red wine in their hands. I never had a conversation with uh, with, with with that person with uh, Dom. about this. Yes. Okay, but just to be clear, I mean it is a simple statement of fact of where we are. We're going to lose seats. That polling is that, that polling is not out of line with what it's, other polls are saying. Yeah, yeah. Exactly, and I'm surprised at the at the backlash given us to say polling is there to be beaten. Uh, and actually, if anything, it shows why the Labour Party probably should have gone for the election but that's a different that's a different subject okay so far, but before we before we move on from this just what do you expect amber to do now does she stand again does she join a new party does she join the lib dems amber's been very clear she'll run as an mp at the next election whenever that comes it won't be in hastings um and she's made no further decision yet and i'll, I'll leave it to her to communicate that very good uh, will, let, will it, it won't oh. be in nicholas Holmes' seat i just wonder because he was very nice about her when we interviewed him last nicholas Holmes is a fantastic man it won't be uh it's extremely unlikely to be in his seat we could spend half an hour just naming <laughs> 650 seats i'm not sure that'll be uh, the award-winning content that we're so well known for uh, let's move on though and talk about um someone else who's been very much in the news uh, again this week this is rachel sylvester John Burkow was showered with praise by MPs this week when he announced his resignation, but he's still a deeply divisive figure. Brexiteers see him as a Remainer intent on thwarting their plans, and Remainers see him as a champion of democracy. The Speaker has certainly made some mistakes, but overall he's played a crucial role in defending Parliament against an overweening executive. So we had the moving, gushing tributes from John Burkow to himself in the House of Commons. Teary-eyed as he gazed longingly up at his wife and uh, spoke movingly about how brilliant he'd been. Um, and it does seem as if whether or not you think John Burko is any good aligns almost exactly with whether or not you like Brexit, uh, as I discovered um, after tweeting about uh, <laughs> what happened last night and how I had to turn Twitter off. Um, which side of that argument do you, do you come down on, Rachel? Well, I'm a Remainer and also a Burko fan, so maybe I prove your point. But I think that he has got a sort of terrible pomposity. He has made mistakes, particularly on the whole bullying allegations. 
Um, but he's also been a real moderniser in Parliament. And I think this goes beyond whether or not you're pro-Brexit or anti-Brexit. Um, you know, he's given MPs much more power to challenge the executive. And he's enabled Parliament at a time when the government has been trying with really quite underhand and unconstitutional methods to bypass MPs to give the parliament the authority it deserves and should have for, for the sake of democracy. So, for example, making sure that MPs were able to vote on government's Brexit deal and also standing up against the attempts to prorogue parliament. You know, just this week we've had a government trying to, not only proroguing parliament for five for five weeks, but talking about actually trying to ignore laws. But the, the, the problem with people who get very cross about the government twisting the rules is they're more than happy for John Burko. Either we've got rules or we don't. And you can't say, oh, it's all right if John Burko does it because he's on my side, but it's not all right if Boris Johnson does it. You know, but at the risk of sounding like a playground fight, John Burko started it at the start of the <laughs> year when he tore up precedent and gave uh, MPs the right to do something in the Commons they couldn't do previously before. But all he's doing is giving MPs the power. He's not telling MPs how they should vote. But it's quite uh, clear what he's MPs been doing. He was elected. really clear with the prorogation. Self-fulfilling prophecy. The more he bends the rules, the more the government looks to work around him, and therefore the more he looks to bend the rules, so the government looks for more ways to work around him. And the whole point of the wreaths of prorogation that everyone completely lost their minds over was this was an attempt to stop Parliament passing legislation to prevent no deal, which they, instead of mucking about, the Remainers finally got their act together and they passed it, anyway. It was also... There were the Remainers, the non-no-dealers, whatever you want to call them, were going to rip up recess as well, as soon as Jacob Rees-Mogg laid the order for recess. Otherwise, as soon as Jacob Rees-Mogg laid down on the front page. <laughs> David? A, a, a lot of this actually goes back, doesn't it, to the legal challenge, or, or including the, Gina Miller's legal challenge to, to, to the government. Essentially, what happens is that we have a contradiction of jurisdictions. Um, we had a referendum which is um, uh, direct democracy interpreted in a certain way by a government which a lot of people would say went well beyond any reasonable interpretation of what that vote allowed you to do, which was opposed essentially in Parliament. And in the first instance, the government simply wanted its position to prevail without actually Parliament's capacity to amend it, something as big as the terms on which we would then trade with the rest of the world and with the European Union was supposed to be entirely within the government's purview, subject only to some kind of possible, actually probably not even subject Subject to a final uh, Commons vote. That when that went, Burko was part of the instrument in making sure that Parliament actually had the capacity to judge and pass votes on whatever it is that the government did. And I reiterate, the government didn't want that to happen originally. They simply wanted to decide themselves. Now that, and so what's happened subsequently, that is, if you like, the kind of important historical. Uh, he is incredibly irritating as a human being. I mean, there's no kind of <laughs> to, 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 two ways about it, although some people claim to, to love that. And there is, of course, there are, of course, the allegations of bullying against him, which seem to me to pass the test of credibility, as far as I can see, uh, quite a lot of those... Uh, I mean, we should point out that he, he, he strenuously denies them. Rachel said there was a comments report which said the culture of bullying in, the, in Parliament was so bad that the leadership should all be replaced and he was part of that. Well, exactly. I mean, and, and that's true too. So you could make the argument that he should have done he should have done more about it but in the historical sense what burko has done was what was necessary to be done if you were a parliamentary sovereigntist rather than a kind of government first person in a way he's the victim of the fact that 
the government doesn't have a majority. So there is a, it's a hung parliament, there's going to be disputes within parliament, uh, and there isn't the ability for the executive to sort of ram through its legislation in the way it might have done if they had a huge majority. But would, so, it, it, would yeah, it not have been better for it to have played that role, that role as referee without calling Andrea Leadsom a stupid woman, without only this week calling a government, telling a government minister, I don't give a flying flamingo what you think? You sure, I, I, I do think he's made some mistakes like that, but those are relatively small in comparison to the bigger hero status, I would say, he has in terms of defending Parliament against the executive. To David's point as well, just on the, the point about the meaningful vote, when you look back in history, there is a great irony that it was Dominic Grieve and the arch-Remainers who managed to create the meaningful vote. And had they not done so, Theresa May, as we saw, negotiated you know, a perfectly reasonable, softish Brexit deal, which, and we would have been out, and they, I suspect, would have been happy enough. And there would be no no deal. The, the the meaningful vote which the Remainers wanted to secure yeah. ended up being used by the Brexiteers to yeah. to their advantage. Oh, I see. Sorry, Jason. To yeah, vote down the deal. Yeah, 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 yeah. You should have been nastier about them. I'd have understood. <laughs> <it. Yeah. laughs> and so, what within government? What's the view of John Burke? I mean, as a departmental spad, it used to drive me insane that he would grant urgent questions on decisions that were made about five years ago, and they didn't pass the sniff test of urgent. Um... He... So what happens then? So um, what something comes up in the news, Labour MP yeah. or Labour frontbencher demands an urgent question on this issue. Yeah, so every morning you'll get an email from your parliamentary clerk uh, early enough. Uh, an urgent question has come in. Uh, we have you, you have about 20 minutes to submit your rebuttal. A good parliamentary clerk can sort of see the issues coming and rebuttals will be prepared in advance. You submit your rebuttals to the Speaker's office and then... Basically, he has the power to decide whatever he wants. There are some days that he would uh, allow urgent questions to go on all day. There are some days he didn't. I must say, there was a parliamentary clerk who once told me that basically if you submitted an urgent question on the day that John Burkow was scheduled to go to Wimbledon, you had absolutely no chance whatsoever <laughs> of getting it because he couldn't wait to wrap proceedings up. And so, and and so, then what? Norm minister, normally the secretary of state, normally Amber Word, has to basically get ahead around a whole load of stuff in well, an the, hour or so. The, the ministerial WhatsApp group goes insane for a couple of minutes, while the whip for your department frantically asks the spads which minister is taking this urgent question. The spads will then work out basically which minister they want to punish most on that day, and they will nominate the minister. the The secretary of state rarely takes the urgent question unless it's a big, big, big issue. Uh, and sometimes there's a tactic to not doing so. So if the Secretary of State takes the urgent question, it means their shadow counterpart does, which can elevate the issue. So say it's the Foreign Office, you know, you might want to deprive Emily Thornbury of the opportunity to grandstand at the dispatch box. And if a junior minister takes it, it means one of her junior counterparts will do so. Um, before we move on, who, who does anybody want? This is a niche question, but if, this is a niche podcast. Who, who do we want to be the new speaker? Harriet Harman would be great. Uh, it'd be good to have a woman. She would be a sort of modernising, campaigning uh, candidate. And also, I think she's not too divisive. Jason? Philip Hammond. <laughs> Make a note of that. It would just be hysterical. I mean, I, I don't know if he... I just honestly want it for the for the comedy factor, really. Because if there's one thing we've been lacking in British politics later, lately, it's a comedy factor. David? Marc Francois. Marc Francois. He would be. He could. Well, he could. He could borrow the clothes from John Burko. Both quite. 
uh, short men. My my money's on um, uh, Lindsay Hoyle, uh, basically just because he's the MP for Chorley. And uh, um, he, in fact, he still owes me some Chorley cakes. Anyway, um, that, let's not get bogged down in that. In a moment, we're going to talk about the Lib Dems. We'll be back after this short break. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile unlimited premium wireless. Ready to get 30 30, ready get 30, ready get 20 20, 20 ready get 20 20, ready get 15 15, 15 15 just 15 bucks a month. So, give it a try at mintmobile.com/switch. $45 up front for 3 months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Chorley cakes? Mm. What's that? (laughs) (laughs) They are... uh, They were were, uh, Lancashire delicacy. What's the difference between them and an Eccles cake? I'm not sure. I think they might be flatter. I thought they were quite dry. I ate them once in a pe- in a services. Cakes all are up there. Um, and Lindsay told me that they need butter, so we were going to have some buttered. That's what they did. They put butter in it. Buttered, and they'd be much nicer. You're listening to the recipe section of the Red Box <laughs> podcast. Uh, welcome back. Uh, this is David Aronovich. Who a year ago would have thunk it? In 2017, the Lib Dems were only marginally less pulverised than they had been in 2015. Since then, they've had a resurrection worthy of a decoration in a Baroque cathedral. Just at the moment, even the slower Remainers realised that the People's Corbyn was not one of them, the Lib Dems appeared as the main possible repository of Remain anguish. It was part accident, but now, as they begin their conference, their average polling figure is 20%, and Joe Swinson is a household name. Actually, I lied about that last bit. Who would have thunk it indeed, David? It is quite extraordinary. I mean, the hashtag Lib Dem fight back that we've been promised for almost a decade now is, is it does seem to finally be happening. And you wrote about this in The Times, uh, about how it is no longer just a choice between Labour and the Conservatives. It's staggering. I mean, uh, a few weeks ago, I wrote essentially, it reminded me of that scene in Modern Times when Charlie Chaplin is walking down the street and somebody drops a red flag off the back of a, a lorry and he picks it up, standing on the corner, and all of a sudden a great big demonstration of workers comes in behind him round the corner and he's at the front of it. And the Lib Dems remind me of that. What had happened essentially was that the Change UK was supposed to be the vanguard of the new reawakening of the Remainers and the uh, and the realignment of British politics. But what happened in between before that was we had the local elections. And in the local elections, the Lib Dems did incredibly better than everybody expected. This gave them the lift to go into the European elections. And by the time they had finished, they were by far and away the biggest holders of the uh, of the flag at the front of the Remain demonstration. Uh, and this has given them a position of immense strength. A lot of the change people have now joined uh, uh, the Lib Dems. They've won by-elections. They've won a lot of the local council by-elections. Well, they would tend to do that anyway, uh, and so on, and have become a real force. Now, the thing to remember is... 
Most of the time, most journalists on most mainstream outlets denigrate the Lib Dems. We laugh about going to their conference, how silly it is and how we don't want to go, etc. If you have any kind of discussion on Radio 4, the chances are, as they said, this is now our traditional moment when a Labour MP and a Tory MP discuss Prime Minister's question time, so the third party gets no kind of a, a look in. We think they're all kind of beards and sandals. We scoff at them, we laugh at them, etc. And despite all that, Phoenix-like, they have uh, uh, they have risen uh, from the from the embers. We actually, and Joe Swinson is currently, this may partially be because the voters don't know very much about her, is the, currently the only major British politician outside uh, Scotland, Scotland's Nicola Sturgeon, who has a positive rating. I think the negative rating for Boris Johnson is in the 40s, Jeremy Corbyn in the late 30s, Nigel Farage is pretty high, people don't like him very much uh, either, whatever he thinks and so on. And Joe Swinson's got plus 4%, which is almost revolutionary. <laughs> And Rachel, they've come out with a new policy ahead of their uh, conference in Bournemouth this weekend of just moving away from a second referendum, just a straightforward revoke. Let's just stop Brexit. Yeah, I think it's fascinating. They've decided they've got to be the Remain party, pure and simple. Uh, And it's trying to capitalise on this change in the political axis, if you like, from left, right to leave Remain. But I think it's a bit of a risk for them because there will be quite a lot of Labour voters, Tory voters who are interested in the Lib Dems but are worried about whether actually can you really have a straight-to-revoke situation. And even though they may be Remainers themselves, they may have questions about how democratic that would be. Now, of course, if you look at the detail of their policy, they're saying only in the case of a a majority Lib Dem government would they straightforwardly revoke it. takes us back to pre-2010 days. (laughs) They were giddy days when those of us were going to Lib Dem conference in 2007 and and they were announcing in a second term of a Lib Dem government we'd build a train line (laughs) to the moon. So in reality, (laughs) what their policy is, is to back a second referendum in influence with another party. But what they're trying to do is just capitalise on that purity of the new political dynamic where are you leave or are you remain? Brexit party's got the leave purity and they're going for the remain uh, clear and simple message. Do you, do you think that's paving the way for, in the event of a hung parliament, and it's suggested we'll probably end up with a hung parliament as when we get an election, if their hardcore policy is revoked, then a second referendum basically becomes the bargaining chip of them providing any support? I think a second someone. referendum would have to be a red line in any kind of discussions with any other government. The revoked policy, though, it's the consequence of they can see Labour moving towards a second referendum, and on the Europe issue, they need to constantly outleft them so i mean if labor went for revoke the lib dems would have to go for join the euro like you know they they, they need to they <laughs> always need to be to the left of where labor are i think actually i think if that's if that's their thing i think they're a mis- that's a mistake i think the people have already pretty much got the message about where people uh, uh, parties stand and as long as jeremy corbyn is leader of the labor party they will always be able to say that this is a man who is distinctly unenthusiastic about the european union and would take you off in a trice if he thought his socialist paradise was threatened in any way by eu regulation um uh, the fight that i mean it's 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 really interesting to think about how the lib De- from the lib dem point of view how an electoral fight pans out um uh, and it's not easy it's not simple it's really tricky uh, 
the one thing I think they've got to do is I think they've got to be incredibly ecumenical about it. They can't afford even their own own traditional sectarianism about seats and we're better and, and so on. They've got to be really have a sense of humility about dealing with independent MPs, independent Tories, gr- gr- really good Green candidates in one or two places, uh, one or two good Plaid Cymru and, uh, and so on. Um, in Scotland, it really doesn't matter because uh, the Nats are, going to, are probably going to just uh, win everything. But everywhere else, and it's a it's a way of being uh, in politics, which is tricky. And actually, funnily enough, you said something really interesting, Jason, which is you know they the other side needs its Dom Cummings, etc., yeah. and that kind of ruthlessness. There is a problem area here for liberals uh, and, and people on that side and that side of politics, which is I mean, liberal Democrats actually have been quite good at this sort of kind of ruthlessness in the past, but it doesn't really go down well with quite a large <laughs> section of, of of liberal and centrist electors. They don't like it it's not a stance which they're comfortable with and the problem still remains jeremy corbyn because to get everyone in the same room to sort of the, the, all the non-no dealers the anti-boris people they have the numbers you know they they far outweigh the tory party in parliament however while jeremy corbyn is there there's never going to be a viable coalition there's never going to be a viable way forward well, that moment in 2015 in- yeah what I think is interesting, though, is there has been a shift over the last couple of months and almost like a unity of purpose now behind this idea of stopping no deal and then potentially getting another referendum. And people are, from different parties have been talking to each other in Parliament now for some months, much more than previously. And there's a slightly different attitude, you feel, talking to Labour and the Liberal Democrats uh, and the Greens about how they could cooperate at an election. I think there will be much more tactical voting encouraged than at previous elections. The problem with the Lib Dems is they've got to, because they obviously benefited from it in Brecon and Madnesshire, where the Green Party and Plaid stood aside. But they, the Lib Dems need to take the leap and find the seats where they're happy to stand aside. And and, and it, it might be, if they, if they there's been talk that Rory Stewart might stand again as an independent, if the Lib Dems stood aside for him, I could see the Lib Dems going for that, and then that opens the door for them to do it in other mm. places. Electoral pacts work. You, you raised the point on Hastings. The funniest thing I always think about Hastings is Amber won by 346 votes in 2017. It was a breakaway Labour Marxist who thought that Jeremy Corbyn was too right-wing who got 412 votes in Hastings (laughs) and kept her in, basically. Uh, And had Mr. Marx's chap not stood, well, there probably never would have been an Amber resignation because uh, she wouldn't have been in Parliament. History would have been completely different. Exactly. Well, it's fascinating to see how it all pan out. The Lib Dems are in Bournemouth from this weekend and then the uh, party conferences lie before us um, excitingly. I think that's the word. You all look very excited about that. Do you you get to get, get out of party conference now, Jason? Well, yes and no. My, I I won't probably go to party conference, but it is in Manchester, where I live, over the Jewish New Year, which I need to go home for. So she might pop in uh, as <laughs> as conference is taking place. I'll be if if Don if Don wants to catch up over a large glass of red wine. I would love to. <laughs> I would I love know, to. He hardly ever comes home to see his mother, and when he does, he goes off to the party conference. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, we look forward to. I look forward to seeing you, Manchester. Anyway, uh, my huge thanks to Jason, to Rachel, and to David. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen, and subscribe to my morning email at thetimes.co.uk forward slash redbox. But for now, for me, Matt Charlie, it's goodbye.
This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 